You're listening to Peel Talks Housing, the Region Appeals podcast delving deep into complex issues around affordable housing and homelessness and efforts to help residents get and keep housing. Episodes will feature residents with lived experience, Region Appeals staff, our partners, academics, policymakers, and other leading voices in the affordable housing sector. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of the Region of Peel or the direction provided by the Region Appeals Council. Hey everybody, my name is Axel Villanelle and we're here on Peel Talks Housing, focusing on why we need to think beyond traditional purpose-built rental development to increase the supply of affordable housing. Today we have some amazing panelists joining us, but first I'll let them introduce themselves, starting off with Jim. Hi, I'm Jim Dunn, and I'm a professor at McMaster University in the Department of Health, Aging, and Society. And right now, the biggest thing I'm doing is running an organization called the Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. And we serve as the hub for a network on housing research. It's funded by CMHC. And uh, we're focusing on capacity building. So that's building up the next generation of housing researchers data capacity building, and also mobilizing knowledge. So once we learn things from research, getting them in the hands of people who can make decisions with that research. Happy to be here. Amazing. Thank you, Jim. Paulina. Hello, everyone. My name is Paulina Mikicic, and I'm a planner with the city of Mississauga, and my formal title is Manager of Planning Innovation. And I oversee a group of uh, staff that is actually implementing housing initiatives at the local level. This may sound easy. Uh, It is challenging because the city has no statutory authority to implement housing. That is actually the purview of the region of Peel. But we found that we can actually influence um, and and create more affordable housing. So one of the projects we're working on right now is increasing housing choices in neighborhoods. Amazing. Last but not least, we have Marcel. I'm Marcel Leclerc. I'm the broker of record for Heritage Realty and the president of Chelton Homes. For Heritage Realty right now, um, in terms of the housing, we're working on updating our rental program for a converted Catholic church. And we're also, for homes, we're working through a new six-story condominium um, on Plains Road, which has the potential to be rental units. Amazing. Thank you all for your intros. We'd love to dive into the first question, and it's how can we diversify the built housing in neighborhoods? What about living arrangements such as home sharing that help to maximize opportunities in existing housing stock? Now, any of you, whoever you you have, you have an answer, you'd like to jump in, please go ahead and uh, start the conversation. The official plan and zoning for most cities in North America after the Second World War became really restrictive rather than permissive. And that is exactly what we're trying to do, see how we can actually introduce other forms of housing uh, that a hundred years ago existed in the city. Um, So uh, the challenge is that um, our existing regulations typically are protecting neighborhoods and not allowing change and and causing a a great deal of challenge. But we've been uh, working on various different ways and really removing any barriers. That's our goal is to remove any barriers uh, to to be able to promote this type of housing. I agree that diversification is definitely needed. And, uh, you know, we actually have relatively few choices, right? We have uh, a very limited set of choices related to housing. I think the one caution I would have is not to get too excited about any one great idea, right? A lot of people will get behind a particular new great idea, be it home 
home sharing or tiny homes, and this is going to be the solution to all of our housing problems. It's probably not, right? It is going to give more choice. And those choices might actually be appealing to some people, depending on their taste. And so, yeah, absolutely, there's a rule for supplying those. But um, it's not going to work for everybody. So home sharing, you know, that's an interesting concept. Uh, I know that uh, there's legislation in Ontario that's made it easier, particularly for older adults to do that sort of thing. And there's um, and there's definitely uh, some pathways to get there. The thing I worry about in that kind of instance is, first of all, it's not a solution to, for everybody. Not everybody's going to want to do that. It's probably a relatively small number of people are going to want to do that. And the real difficulty is how do you protect everybody that's involved in that? What if somebody amongst the home sharers has a silent stroke and starts to decline in their functioning, right? The whole notion of home sharing is that there would be, or one of the notions of it is that there'd be some uh, mutual support that takes place of an informal nature. What if the support burdens for one of the, the roommates actually become more uh, too burdensome for everybody else? Who's going to take over? What if the family doesn't step in? So there's, you know, that one strikes me as one that has a lot of risk. So I really think that uh, we need to better understand the acceptability of these kinds of things. And, uh, and by, by all means, we should definitely diversify. But how are we going to meet the total need? How are we going to scale these at a level that's going to actually meet the total need? How can local slash regional governments help support affordable housing solutions within established neighborhoods? And how do land use planning processes and the building code actually play a role? Maybe I'll take a stab at this. Um, I agree with you, Marcel. Um, it, it isn't easy and it is about balancing. And so um, my section and the planning department was created to deal with those issues, with those kind of uh, silos um, and address. I and mean, it's called innovation. And innovation means you work really hard and you butt a lot of heads inside and outside. But we need the development industry. We're not building the supply. So we need them to work. And we're trying to see what makes sense as of right, ultimately. That would be the goal. Um, um, Jim, you referred to the legislation that the province um, uh approved essentially requiring us to allow additional units. So for every detached, semi and townhouse, we're in effect supposed to allow a total of three units. And this could be in the form of uh, garden suites, laneway homes, um, various arrangements, uh, duplexes, uh, you, you know, the, the, the range is quite vast. The challenge is, if you look at Mississauga's um, topography, we have very limited lanes. So we have to come up with a solution that works for us. And, and another thing that we're doing that may be different from other cities we're, is we're actually analyzing the true economic impact of those outcomes. Because just because you allow three units on a site doesn't mean they're going to be affordable. What needs to happen? And things like home share and dare I say, that word lodging houses may be more affordable, um, but politically they're very challenging um, to to implement. So um, again, we have to balance parking requirements, the need for privacy, open space. But our goal would be ultimately to to have more as of right permissions. Yes, I agree with that big time. More as of right, as of right zoning on arterials uh, for multi level would be a great innovation because right now we have a stranglehold that's being created by single detached dwellings and the planning process, which allows the existing owners of those single detached dwellings to oppose almost anything. And uh, so we have a system where essentially we've baked in 
immense rights to opposing any new development into the uh, into the existing homeowners in a community. And as a result, and, you know, this is based on the historical planning practice, which segregated multi-unit from single detached. We have a situation where people, for instance, if they want to move to a more appropriate housing, older and when they as they get older, they actually have to leave their own community. And we don't have any, we don't have the the availability, for instance, to convert existing single detached in a land assembly or something like that into gentle density, because essentially it can be opposed. You know, you can have a hundred and one foot wide lot on shade land that has an original home built in the forties. There's no sidewalks. You couldn't get a secondary dwelling on there. You couldn't take it down and put two. You couldn't put three, which it would suit fine, but you couldn't put two houses. It, you would you would be tied up for years trying to do anything with that. And it's just, it makes no sense. And you're, you're exactly right, Jim. It's not about 30-story towers. People want more ground-level living. And you could do that so easily just by giving as-of-right zoning. And if for a house... Have go from a 35% lot coverage to a 50% lot coverage. Still have lots of green space. And you could put up to three stories. You could get two extra dwellings in in all kinds. You'd, you'd probably put in 10,000 new homes and not have to increase your sewage, your roads, anything. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. But there's no political will to do it. They all talk about it. The, the interesting part is the people that are opposing it don't actually understand it would increase their property values. <laughs> you know, they, they all say, oh, it's, I don't want that there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to negatively impact my property value. It would actually increase it. And reduce the growth rate on their taxes because you'd be using existing infrastructure much more efficiently. There's a huge demand for ground orientation and there's some great designs that can give really good ground orientation. Stack Townhouse is a fantastic design, right? That can give family housing with uh, you know lots of amenity space, but also uh, a really good ground orientation, so. As a millennial, hearing everybody talk, I mean, as I've hosted many of these episodes before, I just tear every time <laughs> in sadness. Uh, but with the solutions that you provide, it gives me hope um, to to see that there is solutions that can actually happen. It's just who's willing to actually do this thing? Um, but I would love to talk about some something that Regional Appeal actually does, um, which is very cool to see and, and know about. It's about the secondary suites and accessory apartments, which is they created the My Home Second Unit Renovation Program in 2020. So I'm not sure if you're all familiar with it, but just for our audience, it provides up to a maximum of 20 grand Canadian by way of forgivable loan to eligible homeowners who need to upgrade and legalize their existing second unit. $10,000 $10, can also be allocated to homeowners who rent to a tenant referred by the region of Peel. So, you know, this program has been well received by homeowners across Peel. One of our staff here uh, actually, you know, heard about this through Peel as we were pre-producing this podcast. And he goes, wow, this is, this is amazing. This would help out. So clearly these units units meet a need in Peel's communities. Uh, and we know there are opportunities and challenges with secondary units. So let's talk about them now. What is a secondary unit? And how can they play a role in affordable housing supply? I mean, secondary units are essentially um, an additional rental unit that's in a primary dwelling. And on um, and typically it is within the same building envelope. Um, in the past, those secondary units, um, if you were creating new construction, you had to pay a development charge 
for those units. And we, for years, Mississauga had been lobbying the province. Why are you charging someone $40,000, which is what the cost would be to put in the unit? It didn't make any sense. So luckily that was removed. So you can build essentially a two unit dwelling. Um, but secondary units are intrinsically more uh, affordable because they are not the prime dwelling, they, they are intrinsically more affordable and they really uh, support, especially low-income workers in the city. Our housing strategy is is, is a much an economic development strategy. We want to keep employ, uh, employees in the city so they can live and work. And so we find second units uh, very valuable. For example, uh, in my neighborhood near Credit Valley Hospital, there's nurses, there's technicians living in second units and it's been a very uh, important source of of uh, supply, affordable supply. The challenge with um, secondary units from the municipal perspective has always been things like parking, um, you know, trying to accommodate that we've uh, more recently, we've relaxed the requirement for the, for the second unit and let the household figure out how they're going to share parking. Um, but we're trying to introduce now a third unit as well. So it, it becomes more challenging. And again, we don't know from the province if they, are going to treat that as a DC payable unit. Um, so, but yeah, parking is a significant one. So um, I'd like to see a program that also supported um, the creation of new units as well, not just, um, you know, I mean, it's very important to, to upgrade the existing ones, but it ideally it would be nice to encourage people to actually build new ones. Problem that you have with all those illegal units and a lot of people that do the secondary units is they don't actually do it right. And the reason they don't do it right is because they don't apply for a building permit because it's just going to get them turned down in most cases anyway. So they go ahead and convert it. They don't do any of the sound um, barrier insulation between the lower level, upper level. They don't do fireproofing. They don't do separate heating and separate hydro units because they're just triggers for them to, to get shut down. And so you have people that are living in secondary units that really aren't great units. If you want to improve people's lives, give them a nice place to live. It doesn't cost a lot more to do it right. And when you do those basics right, the first time you're going to have longevity on that secondary unit and you'll attract the workers. They can stay in the community. They can work there. They can, you know, you have single parents, you have a nice, your child's not upset about living there because they can actually go to sleep at nine o'clock at night and not hear everybody running around upstairs. You have to do it right. You know, they, very few people are doing it right because they won't apply for a building permit. And even if they, they do, they get turned down in many municipalities, obviously Peel's changing, which is amazing. So it's again about just accepting that everybody needs a place to live. They have a right to have a nice place to live. And they'll feel good about themselves and they'll contribute back to the community if they're feeling good about where they live and they feel part of the community. If they feel sub, substandard, they're going to behave that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. The workforce housing approach is really important and there's an increasing recognition that that's an issue. And, you know, I mean, if, if, you, uh, if you think about it, in many of our communities, an entry-level condo is you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six times the annual salary of a $20 an hour worker. So if you take the annual income of a $20 an hour uh, worker and 
you divide it by the an entry level condo, it's six times. And the normal guideline is that it should be about three times for your first purchase. And uh, so we're not even close. And uh, I think it's it's absolutely a real challenge. It is, I think it is, however, politically a really uh, valuable uh, point, which is to say, you know your employers are going to have a tough time finding a workforce if they can't work there. I know that that was actually a big factor in the, um, uh, that's actually worked really well in Montgomery County, which is one of the, uh, it's in the greater Washington DC area. And it's an area where inclusionary zoning has been very successful over a period of uh, some decades. And one of the things that actually uh, made it successful, and one of the things that garnered the political support was this argument about a workforce housing, right? That essentially this was, and I'm not talking about, you know, Fort McMurray kinds of trailers or anything like that. When I say workforce housing, I'm saying housing that people who work at a living wage can actually afford, right? And so in a living wage in the in the kind of Western GTA is probably in about the 18 to $20 an hour range. Coming in from a very fresh perspective, uh, I, hearing what you're all saying, is uh, very eye-opening because it really does affect the communities down to a very, very different level. It's just not a place to stay, but it's a place um, that affects you and your lifestyle and how you act in your community. So, you know, the better we can do for our housing and and, and provide affordable housing, the better our community will actually be. So I, I love how that, you know, was all brought up. So the next topic I actually do want to talk about is the existing stock of privately owned affordable rental housing. We recognize that the stock is outside of government investment and is an important factor in the health of our communities, but should we preserve it? How can we ensure it remains available to people who need it? Um, the city of Mississauga has actually implemented a rental protection bylaw. And um, the main impetus for that was um, we, as you know, are um, have a LRT coming along here, Ontario. And there was concern. We have significant purpose-built rental stock in that corridor. So there was a concern about losing that through redevelopment. Um, but we actually introduced a citywide uh uh, rental housing protection by a lot, which protects uh, rental buildings with six or more units. So essentially, you have to replace those uh, the affordable units in new cons- in new construction, and that's similar rents. Uh, they don't the the GFA or the floor area doesn't have to be the same, but a one bedroom is replaced by a one bedroom. We also introduced a demolition control bylaw around the same time, which prevents the premature uh, demolition of uh, existing housing. So as a lower tier, we have those powers. So our first goal in our housing strategy uh, was really about protecting the existing stock. I have a seven unit affordable housing geared towards seniors. And I can tell you it's not sustainable from a private um, party's ownership. We're losing money. You cannot expect people to be able to maintain a building. We can't even refinance the building to take out any market appreciation to do capital repairs and costs because the rents are too low. So you, you, the government is the only one that could run a deficit because it's subsidized by all the taxpayers. So they're really not running a deficit. The community's paying for it. Everybody thinks, well, if you're making money on other things, you should be able to do this. Yep, you can to a certain extent to where you go, it's not feasible and we're, we're not going to do it anymore. It's better off for me to just leave units vacant than to rent it at what they are rented at. It, it's sad to say, but you cannot even get to a percentage increase of what the CMHC market rate would be because they're so opposed to anything. 
And you just can't have the private sector take up that without any program to say, well, if you're going to do rentals, I'm going to offset your property. If they're going to be affordable, I'll offset your property taxes. If you have actual capital costs, we're going to do something to allow you to do it. Like if you have to do brick repair, you can't fake that. You can look at it and say, okay, I do this. So I either need to get rent to be able to do that, or I have to have some sort of cash injection somewhere other than our own pockets all the time. So if you want the private sector to invest in rentals, anything would be considered affordable these days if you could do new rentals, in my opinion. But if you want them to be below market, you have to have assistance from the government and not assistance that ties your hands for 20 years because your HVAC systems will need replacing in 10 to 15 years. You know, like nobody thinks of that you can't expect people to continually do just it because it's a good thing at a certain point in time they're going to go yeah it might be a good thing but i've done it for a decade and i'm out because all i do is get kicked in the shins every time i try to do something else so you you really do need someone like you know how you're talking, Paulina, that works with people and takes a pragmatic approach, not to say, well, there's a rent freeze due to COVID and two people have moved out. So those units are vacant, but I can't put the the rental up for someone new coming in who would actually save themselves 800 to $900 a month by renting in our unit versus somewhere else. So I'm better off to wait two months until January when the rent freeze is done. Makes no sense, does it? But that's how they operate instead of a common sense approach. Marcel, I, I totally agree with you. We're trying to learn from uh, the um, rental um, sector. We, we want to understand because what they know, we know they encounter um, massive the need for massive injections. And so at the same time, we're also looking at a rental incentive program that got curtailed a bit by uh, some of the economic impact associated with um COVID. Um, but we're trying to understand and where we can be flexible. So the, Toronto's program is very black and white. Um, but for example, we had a fellow in uh, Port Credit who actually doubled the amount of units in his building. We enabled that to happen because he's upgrading, but he's still maintaining uh, the original, you know, whatever they were, six or seven units by bedroom count. So it's the same footprint. There's no addition, but he's able to make more money. He can generate um, a, a cash flow to to upgrade the building and still offering um, a, a, an affordable rate. It's not we're not restricting him in that particular case to a particular AMR or anything like that. But uh, we thought it was a win-win. So our program is a bit more flexible uh, than others. And we evaluate them on a case-by-case basis. So That makes sense. But I, I've always wondered why they tax rentals higher than they do single-family homes. So you want to provide rentals like, I mean, or you pay a higher tax rate. I guess because the owner only votes once to, you know, and... But it doesn't make any sense. You want to encourage rentals if that's what we're talking about right now because affordable rentals only happen if you have the other segment that would normally be homeowners. And with the new federal loan policies with their how they work their mortgages, I recently had a client who was 82 years old, had a home in Mississauga, 
it's over a million and a quarter, nothing owing on the house, buying a condo in Waterdown, can't get the deposit for the condo in Waterdown because under the new lending rules, she doesn't have the income to qualify to pull any equity out of her home. And the banks don't want to touch it. So you know, it made no sense. This lady's stuck there and you know, we, we had to find a way to get her the money for the deposit, which we did. But the lending rules for people that have all this equity in their home, the banks can't help them even if they want it to because they, they just get fined. So whoever made up those policies didn't consult with the in industry people and it had the opposite effect. All it is is doing, it's concentrating home ownership into smaller and smaller number of people. Yeah. And, you know, if I can, if I can give you a big picture perspective on this, uh, it's a huge issue and it, it's, you know, made all the more difficult with the kinds of things that, uh, that Marcel's talking about. So, you know, there's a huge concern about the loss of, uh, affordable market rental. It's sometimes called NOAA, which is naturally occurring affordable housing. And so essentially it's, uh, uh moderately priced rental housing that is owned by the private sector. And in Canada, compared to other countries, we're particularly vulnerable on this because only about 6% of households in Canada actually get their housing from the public sector, from public providers. In other countries, it's much higher. In the UK, 22% of households get their housing from public providers. And before Margaret Thatcher, and you might remember, those of you who are old enough to remember this, Margaret Thatcher, when she took over in 1980, she sold off a ton of council housing, right, which was the public housing stock. And they went from 33% of households getting count, uh, get, uh, being um they're getting their housing from the public sector to 22% post Thatcher. So we're, they're still at 22%. We're at six. We've never really exceeded six. And so the challenge of that is that we're relying on the, the market to provide housing to people with modest incomes. And uh, it's a real challenge. And so, you know, one of the remedies that the federal government has put in place, which is, you know, still a relatively small program, is the rental housing allowance, which is, a, it's not a rent geared to income uh, uh, transfer. It's a transfer of a fixed amount and it allows people to stay in their units so that they can continue to afford to stay in their units. But it's one of many things that are required for the solution. And the threat right now is coming from large private capital investors who are buying up large quantities of rental housing. They're squeezing the existing tenants out and they uh, and then jacking up their rents. Then they pull out the additional equity that comes from um, from the improvements that they made and the and the higher uh, rental tenants, and the problem is there's nobody left. So, you know, uh, this is not this isn't so much a, a hit on Hamilton as uh, as much as an example. But some of the buildings in the east end of Hamilton that have been bought up by private capital, they were actually offering people cash incentives to leave within sixty days. So they basically say, we'll give you, and I've heard as high as $6,000 to someone to leave within 60 days so that they can vacate the unit so that then they can improve it and, and charge a higher rent. And essentially they want to do that at scale because they've got, you know, these are big corporate kinds of investors. And so the difficulty is that the person who's paying, you know, 700 a month for a one bedroom in one of those buildings $6,000 might sound like an enormous amount of money to them, but there's nowhere else for them to go and still pay $700. So 
you know, and and I totally appreciate the perspective that Marcel brings, uh, given that the, the very small landlords are are squeezed on all of these things, and uh, so we really do have a, a bigger problem that. And I'm just kind of trying to put it in a broader perspective that we do have to address these kinds of things. So, Jim, you're bang on right about what you just said with people buying it. But if you look at the housing stock they're getting, it's dilapidated because the the rules for rental increases wouldn't have allowed the previous owners to actually invest in the property and maintain a rent that would actually pay for that reinvestment. You want to solve the housing crisis? Do all the things we talked about earlier. Get your approvals done in a timely manner. Don't make it a three to five year plan to, to build new stuff. You're at least 10,000 units behind a year for the demand and you do it by inclusionary zoning and, and changing our antiquated rules, you get more housing, the rentals will become more affordable because for the lower income because the people that actually have a moderate income can actually buy something. There's nothing to buy. You go on an offer presentation, you got 15, 20 people you're competing with. And the five people that already own six homes are the ones that are going to outbid those other 15 that are buying their first home. They have no chance. Like no chance without parental or grandparents helping them out. You you get rid of the supply demand imbalance, you'll start creating affordable rentals because landlords will say, well, you know what? Instead of getting $3,000 a month, I've got seven vacant units. I'm going to rent them out at $2,200 because it's better. And that'll drop the rental increase or d- rental demand and it'll drop the price. You just have supply demand imbalance and it's because you're not getting enough product to the shelf, not enough diverse product. So until you fix the supply chain issue, everything else, yeah, they're going to be little drops in the bucket. They do help, but they're not enough. And to be fair, one of the new things that's occurred in the last few years that simultaneous with all of this is the introduction of Airbnb and other kinds of vacation rentals, which have eaten up an enormous amount of potentially affordable permanent housing stock. So, you know, if you want to get a sense of this, just go on Airbnb and look on a map neighborhood by neighborhood across the GTA. And there's plenty of units that could be regular, affordable house, you know, modestly priced market housing for people that are instead being rented as Airbnb. And, you know, the introduction of regulation for that is a good step. But, um, you know, one could argue that we could go quite a bit further. And in fact, it's becoming more, if it's more profitable for someone to use their Airbnb, their unit as Airbnb than it is for regular housing that's affor- affordable in the market for people who have even middle to modest income, then that, what are they going to do, right? They're going to do that. So it's, it's another big variable that uh, the, the market in terms of construction and, and other parts of the, uh, the system have really not adapted. So it looks like we, we got a lot of amazing amazing perspectives. We, I think we understood a lot that there, it's a very sticky situation, you know, politically down to the, the capital level. Um, so as, as we wrap up on this final note, I, w- I would love that each person in one sentence gives me their number one takeaway from this conversation. And I would love to start with you, Jim, and then Paulina and then Marcel. So for me, it's uh, that we need to get over this crisis of land supply. And that we need broad-based, as-of-right zoning, more sensible taxation, 
and incentives that are going to incentivize the kinds of housing that we need for modestly uh, modest income households at scale. We got to do large stuff. The little stuff, again, every little bit makes uh, makes a difference, absolutely. But we need to do large-scale stuff that's going to be a real jolt to the system. You know, working on housing issues for the last few years, really what struck me is that affordable and appropriate housing for everyone is the foundation of a good quality of life, of a just society. And we just have to do uh, to, to make a difference. We have to be more inclusive. And if it means butting heads somewhat with, with, uh, existing, um, communities, uh, what I've found is that people are, there is a growing awareness, um, amongst uh, communities that there's a need for change. And um, when we first started going out with a housing strategy, which was focusing on middle income, and we went and spoke with a poverty group, an advocacy group, we were stunned that they had sympathy for middle income households. We thought, oh, no, who's going to care about this? But they did. But but at the same time, but please don't forget about us as well. And so there's this genuine... um, you know, I think growing awareness, but also this is about a quality of life for everybody. And I think it's really important. And so I'm glad Mississauga is doing what we can. Um, we're, you know, I still have years to work, so we'll see what we can get accomplished. Um, but we rely on the development industry. We have to work with the private sector nonprofit to make this happen. And as Jim pointed out, we need a scalable solution. Jim's points are bang on the money about changing how you do the zoning and and we really do need to stop sprawl and do some more infill and redevelopment on existing housing stock with the wide lots, et cetera. And it's amazing to hear somebody like Paulina actually say that, you know, we want to work with developers and people involved in the housing and real estate industry. You don't get that. All you hear all the time is they're a greedy developer. They got enough money. They can afford it. Folks, the reality is without that, developer nobody says that's a greedy apple company i'm not paying twelve hundred dollars for that iphone they want it they're they're providing a service they're in partnership these people give back to your hospitals to your cancer clinics to all those sorts of things realtors developers everybody involved in the housing they are part of the community they're fulfilling a need they really for the most part you're going to get some outliers that you know if you have a 12 12 story um limit somewhere and it's a recent addition they're still going to push for three times the amount i get the pushback there but if you actually work with somebody you're going to have a much more vibrant community we we just don't have a healthy community we have to look at changing how we build our houses and make them net zero houses and all kinds of stuff but you have to change staff level because staff is the one in control politicians go i get they they give the marching orders, but staff at a cultural level for most municipalities, and Paulina, you're an outlier from any staff person I've ever talked to. <laughs> I, uh, I can't believe I'm hearing some of the things about working cooperatively with you. If you had that attitude and partnerships in, in developing the community, way more progress. You have to get the supply in there. Without balancing out the supply and demand ratios, nothing else is going to matter. Amazing. Well, that wraps up this episode of Peel Talks Housing. Thank you so much to our amazing guests, Jim Dunn, Marcella Clark, and Paulina Mikicic for their amazing input and insight on this discussion. And I also want to thank you to our listeners for listening in. You can find information on our podcast at peelregion.ca and you can join the conversation on the Region of Peel's social media accounts. I'm your host, Axel Villamil, 
and thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of the Region of Peel or the direction provided by the Region Appeals Council.